Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Welcome back to the Good Fight Radio Show. I'm your host, Chad Davidson of Good Fight Ministries. And with me, as always, is the president and founder of Good Fight Ministries and pastor of Blessed Hope Chapel in Simi Valley, California, Pastor Joe Schimmel. How are we doing today? Having a blessed day and excited about this show, too. It's an interesting question. Yeah, I think this is an interesting question. Before we get that, we wanted to say welcome to our video version of this. If you're listening to this on your normal podcast, whether you find this on Spotify, iTunes, or any other way, Podbean, whatever you use on your podcast, you can also check us out. We actually have these on video now on our YouTube channel, and we will also be uploading these to Facebook as well. And we want to thank one of the big reasons we're able to do this is because of our supporters. You guys have come out in the droves to support what we do as a ministry, and we have tried to do our best to give you out as much as material as possible. That's why we are putting out now, if you include not only 511 News with all these four, we're putting out five podcast shows a week on top of the two sermons that Joe does a week. So we're trying to get you guys out as much material as possible because we believe that the days are evil and want to get as much information as possible. So we also want to give a big shout out to all our Patreon supporters at Patreon patreon.com slash goodfight. And actually, this question actually came from one of the Patreons. It was during the live stream. We didn't get to answer everything that we wanted to, but somebody asked specifically, and this question is an interesting one, because I've seen a lot of different things. If you uh, are a follower of Islam, which maybe you're not if you're listening to this show, but if you follow Islam, you believe that Adam was a prophet, right, and so forth. And so if you're a believer in Christ, you know that Adam fell. He was the first Adam, and Jesus is our Second Adam. So the question is, are Adam and Eve in hell? So with that, Joe, are Adam and Eve in hell? <laughs> yeah, I think he posed it as, uh, were they saved? Are they in heaven? Yeah. Which would be the same basic thing, which, where are they? And it's a great question. Uh, it's one of those things when you think about it, it's like, wow, you know what? There's not a lot of commentary. Uh, there's a lot of commentary on Adam. He's called in Romans and also First Corinthians. One place he's called the last Adam. And uh, another place is called, you know, the second Adam, Jesus is. Uh, and, of course, Adam is the first Adam. And, and he was, we got started, the human race did get started with a human being. And, and God called him Adam and his wife Eve. And uh, they fell into ruin. And so there's not a whole lot of New Testament commentary or any specific even verse I know of that speaks specifically of Adam uh, being saved. However, uh, when you look at the narrative in the Old Testament, especially, you know, the first few chapters and you see the fall and so forth, I think it's pretty clear that uh, they both received salvation, uh, at, at least in the terms and in, in the manifestation, the way that God presented it to them, which would ultimately uh, be based on the merits of Christ, I believe, through their accept, acceptance of the sacrifice that God provided on their behalf as a picture typologically uh, for them. And I, So I, I believe, now I don't know where they were at the very end of their lives, because we do see people involved in the sacrificial system in regard to Judaism, and at yeah. first involved in a favorable way, and then coming to apostasy. So it's hard to be absolutely definitive, although I do believe they did have a, um, a salvific experience based on the knowledge they had. Uh, so and I think it's interesting because it's in Genesis when the Lord is bringing the curse upon the ground and, 
and the man and the woman and he'll you know earn his living by the sweat of his brow and in through pain she'll give birth to children and so forth and the ground will bring forth thorns and thistles and the serpent will crawl in the dust of the ground and so forth but it's in the midst of that that you have the proto-evangelicum and the proto-evangelicum is the first believed by many scholars to be the first announcement of the gospel Mm. and i'm in a little bit of disagreement I believe it's the first clear <laughs> announcement of the gospel, yeah. even though we'd say, hey, it's not super clear, but when you look at Genesis through Revelation, it then becomes abundantly clear if you're... And if, and you're, if you're listening today, we, <laughs> this is Tuesday, so you're used to, hopefully, typology past, Tuesday. Yeah, we're going to get back into that eventually. So, so you're going to know where Joe's going with yeah, this answer. You but know, I have to we've point seen the out. gospel over and over and over <laughs> and over again, and we're yeah. still uh, in Genesis chapter 1. Yes, we are. Through the typology and the pictures of, of the first day, you know, the ground coming out of the water... Uh, being a, on the third day, being a picture of the resurrection, uh, first day tohu wabohu, <laughs> let there be light. You know uh, the feast days, these days, and the way he talks about these days being signs is the language that's used exclusively of feast days, which are a picture of Christ's gospel from the first to the seventh feast. So there's all kinds of pictures of, but that's not something you would just understand the first time you read Genesis one if you weren't really a student of scripture and understood how the scriptures go together. So this is the first, I would say, plain, clear language that speaks of uh, the salvation history. Uh, we read in Genesis 3.15 in the Proto-Evangelicum, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that is the serpent, who represents Satan, and the woman, that would be Eve, and, and her offspring, and between your offspring and her offspring, because he just spells it out for us right there, uh, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And it's interesting because the serpent would bruise the heel of Christ. When Jesus was crucified uh, prior to the crucifixion, three times he mentioned Satan being the ruler of this world. King James has prince of this world. The Greek could be translated very easily, ruler of this world. And he talks about it being the power of darkness and the hour of darkness and so forth. And he was in a battle with Satan, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's yeah. sweating sweat and blood, hematrodosis. And he's in this battle, and he goes to the cross where he'll atone for our sins. And it's there, but he didn't stay. And obviously, we just celebrated the resurrection. He was <laughs> yeah. crucified. He was buried. He was rose again, and he conquered death. And we look at this as a, a this, this, you know, he will bruise your heel. And we talk about that being the cross, what happened on the cross. But Jesus rose from the dead, so it wasn't, it was a, he was truly dead. But he truly rose again and conquered death. Therefore, it was a bruise in respect to the eternality of the, the God-man, the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I believe it's also quite literal as well because uh, we don't have time to get into it, but I, on uh, the resurrection message I gave the, before the, the last year, or when I went into his death, I think it was in Psalm 22, we talked about the extremities, and there's a, we go to the medical terms and everything, that the point of your body, the lowest point of your body that touches something physical, uh, that's how they do forensics, that's how they uh, study crime scenes, will be bruised. So if somebody has been moved from a crime scene from one place to another, and and somebody thinks they're getting away and they've been dead for some time, and then they move them, and they think they're getting away, away with it, and that make, make it look like they weren't moved and they died in a certain place, uh, they're often, often, I mean, the text will be like, hey, no, this person has this bruising area here, let's say he's up like this, and that would only happen if they were down like this on the ground. Well, guess where Jesus would have literally had his bruise mark on his heel against the cross? 
mm-hmm. which is really fascinating when you think about it. And so it's, but at the same time, and so I think it's pretty heavy because I do believe it's an expression. But I believe it's also literal. It's very, very possible the Lord meant that also to be literal. But he would, he would, he would uh, crush the serpent's head, and uh, that language is used by Paul in the Book of Romans, and. We see that the serpent is actually, you know, used by Satan. He channels the serpent. Some would argue that the serpent is actually Satan. I believe that he channeled the serpent. Uh, Iser and others would believe that, you know, he was the serpent and the, Satan was the serpent in the garden. But I believe personally that when you, uh, you know, when you read Revelation twelve nine, it says and speaks of the devil. He deceives the whole world. He calls him the serpent, the old serpent. You know, the dragon, serpent. Satan, the devil. He uses four different terms for him. And and guess what? His head's gonna be crushed. He's eventually going to be thrown in the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet will have been thrown a thousand years earlier. So you have the proto-evangelicum, but then right after that, uh, you know, Adam and Eve cover themselves with fig leaves. Uh, they try to hide their, 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 their sinfulness. They're ashamed. They sense the, the guilt of sin. And to their innermost being, they're convicted. Therefore, they hide their nakedness, which is an expression of who they are. And in hiding their nakedness, they use fig leaves, thinking that that's going to hopefully help. The Lord says, where are you, you know? And they're hiding in that whole narrative. But then it's interesting, we, we, verse 21 of chapter 3, and the Lord made Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed mm-hmm. them. So the Lord killed an animal or t- two, we don't know. If it was all one big animal, they, who knows what all existed then. Obviously you had the dinosaurs and, and so forth back then, which were probably pretty tame until sin came into the world. Uh, but it's interesting, he uses skins and clothe them so you have the first animal sacrifice here which is these animal sacrifices you have noah not long afterwards getting out of the ark sacrificing animals seven clean animals and so forth you have uh job you know not under the hebraic temple system uh as a gentile uh, believer committing sacrifice of animal for his children let's say sin against the lord it says uh and what love that father had for his kids man because big ox I think it says every morning, it's like, wow, he's, he's a rich guy, and he could afford to do that. But it's interesting, here you have that first sacrifice. And we know from many passages in Scripture, but especially the book of Hebrews, that all these animal sacrifices were pictures of Christ, the Messiah, who would be the one who would give his life ultimately for the sins of the world. Yeah, and I think, you know, when I think about this text, and, you know, I, I love reading Genesis 3, and it, there's sadness, but there's, there's glory in it, too, because what, exactly what we're talking about with the proto-evangelicum, and we've, we've talked about this, you know, at length, obviously, and one of my favorite things is you think about them putting on their own garments, you know, to cover up, and it's the Lord who provides the garments, and it, for me, it just always brings me back to Matthew 22, Yep. You have the parable of the, wedi- of the of the wedding feast, the wedding banquet, and you have somebody that comes in with their own garments on, yeah. right? And they're thrown off because they don't have the garments that the Lord has provided for them in in Jesus Christ. And I, because I, you know, in Romans it talks about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. and that's what we do in salvation. So I always think about, and I think the parable of the, of the wedding feast is so beautiful because when you find out who the many who are called and the few that are chosen, it really opens up so you have an understanding that God really goes to the ends and the highways and the byways to come and get us. Right, well. and it's a great picture of what we're talking about because. Here it's a wedding for his son, you know, the king's son. And he's a, the king is the father. It's a picture of Jesus. Uh, those who reject him are eventually their city is destroyed with fire. It's a picture of what happened in 70 AD to the Jews. He, they go first to the Jewish folks. Uh, they're invited. And it says, you know, they were unwilling. 
they had all these excuses. And many are unwilling. That's our, you know, the, our life story, right? We share with people. So oftentimes they're unwilling to come to, to Jesus. So you have that group who's unwilling. They don't even come, don't even try to get in. But then you have this other fellow that you're talking about, Chad, who, who comes on his own terms because the king upbraids him because he didn't have on the right wedding garment. Obviously, uh, he wouldn't hold him responsible for something that he didn't know about. And the implication is that the king had provided the wedding garments for everybody, but this guy who represents those who come to Christ in their own righteousness, on their own terms, uh, whether it's, you know, the Mormons saying, hey, I'm going to work my way to the celestial kingdom, go from the terrestrial to the celestial and the celestial and the third heaven by keeping the temple endowments and tithing for years straight, all that. Or, you know, whoever's thinking they're going to be able to be in that great wedding with the Lord uh, based on their own works of righteousness. And it's you're right, he's, and he throws them out to where there's in the outer darkness. Many are called, few are chosen. Who are the chosen? Those who are willing those who those the Lord chooses those who are willing to come to Him on His terms. So that's a that's a great example of that, Chad. Uh, some scriptures that go with that, which is interesting, is Isaiah sixty four six. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, which is interesting when you think of the fig leaves. Kind of interesting, and our iniquities like the wind takes us away. So we become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like filthy garments or a polluted garment. And we've looked at this before in other contexts. And the Hebrew word right there can refer very easily to menstrual cloths, to a woman's tampon, yeah. to, you know, basically. And uh, when you look at Leviticus and the flow of blood being unclean and so forth, uh, this is a very, very graphic term. And uh, that's what we do when we try to, come to the Lord in our own righteousness and say, accept me based on what I'm doing rather than through my faith in Christ. Uh, because I love Isaiah 61.10. I will heartily rejoice in the Lord. My soul will delight in my God for he has wrapped me in garments of salvation. Mm-hmm. So he wraps us in garments of salvation. Mm-hmm. He has arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And that's why I love what Paul says. And you mentioned Romans, you know, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3.8.9, more than that, I count all things to be lost. And this is after he says, hey, I was circumcised the eighth day, you know, I was Hebrew of Hebrews, basically. I was a Pharisee in, you know, the tribe of Benjamin. He starts to, you know, show his blamelessness before the eyes of the the Jews and so forth. And he says, I count all that loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish, garbage, dung. That word, by the way, in the Greek can mean uh, garbage or it can mean actual dung, so that I may gain Christ. And I love verse 9 and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So it's based on Christ's one act of righteousness. He lived a perfect life, uh, a perfectly righteous life to qualify for being the perfect sacrifice as the God-man, because only God could pay for everyone's sins as a man. And through that one act of righteousness, we are clothed now in the righteousness of Christ and we have the merits of his righteousness through his death on the cross and uh, so I love it man because so what's happening with Adam and Eve there is because they didn't reject this sacrifice say no no we love our fig you kidding we're good enough accept us God you know we're coming to you just as we are you have to accept us we refuse to repent of our self-righteousness and we're gonna just wallow in these you can accept this, you're not. And that's the way a lot of people are. They're, they're proud. Uh, represents what we've sewn together, what we've done to be right with you. 
And the Lord says if we don't come on his terms, we can't come at all, ultimately. Yeah, and I think about, you know, their children. You have Cain and Abel, and then you have ultimately two sacrifices that take place as well. And what happens there, again, you have one sacrifice of plants, right? Then you have another sacrifice of what? You have you have the shedding of blood yeah. for the you know and you look at that and you see that not only you know it's one of those things we read Ezekiel eighteen and we see very clearly you know uh, that you know there's a proverb that was that was being said in Israel not supposed to be said anymore that the you know the father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge but God was basically saying that your sin you will die for your sin the soul that sins right. shall die that's the ultimate that's conclusion right. of the chapter one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture but one of the things we do realize is. When it comes to sin, the effects, if your father is an alcoholic, right, a drunkard, it usually has effects on the family, you know, and you see that with the sin. And when you see that, even with Adam and Eve, obviously you recognize the the fall and the fact that we have been tainted, obviously, by sin. But one of the things you notice is even right there, they, there you go with Cain, once again, trying to have his sacrifice versus Abel's sacrifice, which was the shedding of blood, once again. You know, same thing, on your own terms. Right. Now, some people say, well, you know what, and you get the skeptic. Well, it's not fair because, you know, Cain, you know, he was basically a tiller of the ground. You know, he's, he's a gardener and, and Abel, you know, he was, you know, had flocks. So obviously they're offering whatever they're doing and they're offering to God. And that's, that's a limited view. And that's skeptics, unfortunately for them, they'll decide against God by, guess what, coming to their own terms of what the way God should work. And... Uh, and it's not that it wasn't fair. In fact, the Lord pleaded with Cain. He says, if you do what's right, will you not, not be accepted? Be accepted yeah. Obviously, Cain had to have known what was right. And the scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abel offered up his sacrifice in faith. Now, the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So he must have had communication from God's yeah. word, what he was to offer up, and he did it in faith. Uh, Cain, on the other hand, he wasn't doing what's right. In fact, the scriptures are very clear that Cain was of the evil one. In First John, he was of Satan. Uh, he chose Satan's path. So he could have uh, offered up the right sacrifice. And God was calling in that context for a, a blood sacrifice to be a picture of his son. Uh, I'm not saying in other contexts there's more. Christ's atonement is so multifaceted and so beautiful <laughs> yeah. that we even see offerings in Leviticus and so forth that go beyond blood into, you know, uh, wheat and what have you. Yeah, ephah, or, you know, yeah. yeah, we have these wonderful things because they're so pictures. But God was calling for the most blatant picture of his son in that sacrifice. So, But I think it's uh, interesting when I mentioned earlier, which the point you know we're making now bolsters the point that Adam and Eve did accept it mm-hmm. because Cain didn't. He didn't accept God's way. Uh, Adam and Eve had. And when God sought to close them with animal skins, we have no nothing in the biblical record that they refused. However, does that mean they automatically are now in heaven? Well, we don't know what happened after that. That's why I don't, I, again, I do like that little saying, you know, where the Bible speaks, we speak, where the Bible's silent, we're silent. And it's very, very clear uh, in Scripture that they accepted what the Lord provided for them, which is the provision of the picture of salvation. So they had been saved and it, they'll likely be in heaven. However, I say likely because the Scriptures talk about how those garments can become soiled and we can be found naked in the end. In fact, listen to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, this is from Jesus, by the way, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, and yet you are dead. Be, uh, be constantly alert and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die or were about to die. 
for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Then Jesus says, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. So, and by the way, this is for all of us because the last verse says, (laughs) the one who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says in churches. In this teach church says that or a very similar formula. So he's telling them what you've received, okay? It's important that we understand this. What What you've heard, okay? What you've received and heard, that's the gospel. Keep it and repent. Then if you are not alert and I come like a thief, you will not know at what hour I will come to you. And uh, Jesus gave many warnings about him coming like a thief, and he talked about that good and faithful servant, you know, being ready when his master comes. Then in verse 4, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Mm. So it's a heartbreaking uh, letter because you realize this is a church that's God named that they're alive. They seem to be doing things for the Lord, but they're dead because he sees in their hearts that they're really not living for the Lord. They're just going through the motions. And, but there's something left, and it's ready to die. There's still some believers there who have not soiled their garments, and they're supposed to hopefully have a revival there. And then he says, uh, the one who, this is quite important, he says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who overcomes will be clothed in this, uh, clothed the same way in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. Now, it's important because the scriptures are clear. Only believers' names are written in the book of life. Non-believers' names, according to Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, are not entered into the book of life. Some say, well, the book of life is different from the book of life of the Lamb. The book of life of the Lamb is for those who are really born again. The book of life, everybody's names are written in it because uh, it has the names of everybody. There's no scripture to support that. In fact, when we look at Revelation 13.8 we see it's talking about the same book, and the book of life and the book of life of the Lamb are used interchangeably. And we call that special pleading. Is what yeah, that is. exactly. And it's to yeah. try to make a doctrine to protect the idea of once in the book, always in the book. The Bible doesn't teach once in the book, always in the book. Uh, the scriptures are very clear in Exodus chapter 32, verses 32 and 33. Names can be blotted out of the book. Uh, Psalm chapter 69, may they be blotted out of the book of life and not be written with the righteous. Uh, very, very clear in scripture. And here Jesus says it's for the overcomer. Uh, that's, you know, a challenge to... Because these guys obviously aren't overcoming, but it's only the overcomers, and there's some there that are overcoming. Their names are the ones that won't be blotted out of or erased from the book of life. So he says, the one who overcomes will be clothed in the same way, in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels, which brings back the teachings of Jesus. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father in heaven. If you, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father in heaven. And these folks are denying them because it says in Titus 1.16, uh, speaks of those who deny them by their works. Not only with your mouth, but it's with your works. And that's when he goes on to say, he doesn't hear them. Here's what the Spirit says to the churches. Yeah, and I think, you know, not that I'm trying to transition to anything here, but, you know, when I hear you read those scriptures, one of the things that I, I try to point out to my, to my brothers in Christ is w- the damage that you can do in reading those scriptures with a wrong theology coming into it is that all of those promises you just made, clothed in white garments and and those who didn't soil their garments and so forth, all of them that you read, these are beautiful promises Absolutely. to the overcomer. The overcomer. Context. They're not they're not a promise to what I believe uh, Revelation twenty one eight would refer to as the cowards, the right? Apostate, yeah. The apostate. They're not the cowardly. The, right. cow- the cowardly, yeah. yeah. The they're not promises to them. The promises to them are the actually 
the promises of judgment coming yeah. if they do turn. If they all those warnings, what you're doing when you take a doctrine and you institute it into something that is so clearly taught is that specifically when we deal with the book of Revelation, in every, just go through the go through all the letters. You make every one of those warnings, they become impotent warnings. They become nothing. Absolutely. They become the father who warns his child over and over. If you don't, if you grab that, I'm going to spank you. If you grab that, I'm going to spank you. And then they never do anything about it. And then on the other end, what you do is all those promises for the overcomer. Hey, if you get this, we're going to get some ice cream, we'll say, like for my child. If you do this, we'll get some ice cream. And then they don't do it. Yeah, we'll get you some ice cream anyways. You know, but these are much more serious than ice cream and spankings. We're yeah. talking about eternal life here. And when you're taking those warnings and taking those promises and making them useless it's a useless promise if everyone gets it and you're making the warnings impotent when guess what if the god who told you not to do those things you do them anyways and you still get every promise that we're given and you never actually get the eternal spanking that you deserve yeah well it's interesting you say that because here we're talking about abby we're clothed with these garments which were a picture of the garments of salvation that happened in christ and as long as they maintain their faith in christ the just shall live by faith mm-hmm. that's uh now, the Old Testament quoted four times in the New Testament, yeah, uh, so we must continue in the faith. But it's kind of interesting because these these garments here are soiled, and they're contrasted with those who are confessing Christ versus the soiled garments, those who don't have their names erased versus those who would. Uh, and it's interesting because when you say that, there's a movement now that wants to say, well, the overcomer is a special brand of Christian. And that came from... You know, the latter rain movement, they started saying that, that these are super Christians, you know, uh, some of the, in, in the charismania, you know, the, the new apostolic reformation, these are super Christians. And no, uh, these overcomers have been historically understood, and I believe rightly so, to be Christians. It's another term for Christians. In fact, uh, now you have a lot of those, I hate to say it, it's sad though, it's true, in the free, free grace movement. Well, yeah, the overcomers, these people that are backslidden, they'll still enter heaven, you know, they won't go to lake of fire, but it's just these guys, these folks, you know. Uh, they, they, these are special believers, these overcomers. So you have that going on in different, you know, uh, areas. But it's interesting when you look clearly at the scripture, uh, the overcomer is contrasted with the apostate. And in Revelation chapter 2 to the church at Sardis, I'm not Sardis, we're talking about Sardis here, but the church at Smyrna, suffering church, he talks, he says, they're going to go into prison. They'll be, you know, the devil going to cast in prison for 10 days. He says, be faithful to death and I will give you the crown of life. Beautiful. And they contrast that with the lake of fire. And he says, you know, uh, the, you know, he talks about, you know, that uh, there's a promise to the overcomer. And uh, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He that overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So second death, which is defined later as the lake of fire, is contrasted with the crown of life for those who overcome. In contrast, for those who fail to overcome and go to lake of fire, it's not two types of believers. It's the believer and the apostate. And you mentioned Revelation twenty-one eight, Chad. It gives the list of the damned. As for the cowardly and the unbelieving, the abominable murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, liars, all liars, idolaters, their place will be in the lake of fire. But verse seven, right before that, describes what's going to happen to the believer who's the overcomer, because the first six verses of chapter twenty-one talk about the, you know God's tabernacle will be with men. You know there'll be no more death and no more crying, no more mourning and so forth. And it says, he that overcomes will inherit all these things, verse 7. Then in verse 8, it's contrasted, but for the cowardly. And this is, brothers and sisters, it's important to understand. You want to pray that God would help you maintain your faith to the end because uh, there's, they're the, the top of the list of the damned are the cowardly. Those are those who the, 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 those speak who uh, 
Spick, who is a Greek scholar, points out that this word, as does A.T. Robertson, refers to those who renounce their faith under persecution. And it's the, so it's imperative that we realize as times get darker and the culture and technology and stuff with wicked people using it encroaches upon us that we maintain our faith uh, and that we keep our garments clean. And that means we keep them in the blood. In fact, listen to uh, Revelation 20 or 16, 15. Look, I come like a thief, Jesus says. Sound familiar? Blessed is the one who stays awake. Sound familiar? It's all Sardis. And remains clothed. Remains clothed so that so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Last scripture I'll read, Revelation 22, 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates of the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic, arts, the sexually immoral, murderers and murderers, the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. We must make sure, 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he's in light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ has sent cleanses from all, all sins. Sin. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just forgives our sins, cleanses from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. That we are trusting in Christ and cleansed from our sins and following him in the faith. Amen. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.